All right. Well, we'll get started with our our message this morning. We are have had this theme throughout the Advent season of unwrapping. So today we're unwrapping love, and uh, the subtitle of the message then is He Will Save. We're going to talk about Jesus, the Savior. But first, I'm going to read a quote from a story. Some of you might recognize it. We'll see. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well. If any man alive possessed the knowledge, may that be truly said of us and all of us. Does anyone know where that comes from? Christmas Carol, that's right. So what does it mean to keep Christmas? These are the words near the very end of that story, the Christmas Carol. The words are used to describe Ebenezer Scrooge, the main character who, after being confronted with the ugliness of his life, chooses to turn from his old ways and become a new man. But he didn't do it on his own. In the story, that was Charles Dickens' uh, probably most famous, is a powerful look at our tendency towards the sin nature. He spent his life in pursuit of personal riches and gain. He had been a shrewd businessman with no compassion on those who made his money, that he made his money from. And like many of us, his pursuit of the worldly desires within him drove him to be ambitious to have even more. I pray that none of us have yet reached his level of callousness. Scrooge was so far gone that no human could get through to him. It took a supernatural vision for him to awaken from his self-induced coma of cruel disregard of humanity. Now, we may not consider ourselves as far gone as Scrooge, Yet every one of us is also in need of something beyond human power to achieve. Because we, like Scrooge, are set in our ways. We're convinced of our own rightness. We wallow in our own misery unless God has awakened us. Unless he has revealed himself to us and we have responded in turning toward him. Unless, like Scrooge, we've seen with enlightened eyes that can that look on the disgust of our lives and make a firm decision to turn in the right direction in order to be saved from eternal chains. The story of Scrooge is just an allegory, and maybe not a perfect one, but we relate to it. We never think ourselves as bad as the next guy, though, do we? But deep inside, we know our heart is black, and our, our heart tends to go against God. We know that there's a God who demands that we turn to him, lest we end up paying the fair price for our deeds. We know it, we sense it, we shiver at the thought of it, that we are doomed by our own decisions, except, unless, apart from, outside of the Savior. Today we're going to look at uh, the Jesus as our Savior, Healer, Sanctifier, and Coming King, but We want to see these roles in the Christmas story. We need a Savior. The world needs a Savior, and only God could provide what we need. Only Jesus will save. And we're going to look at Matthew 1, 18 to 25 in a moment. And in this passage, we see how Jesus was going to be the Savior, how he was fulfillment of prophecy. And we're going to focus on an extraordinary man who often takes a back seat in the story, but who I think is a wonderful role model for men today, and that is Joseph, husband of Mary. The Savior comes to whoever will have him. 
The Savior comes to those willing to change their plans. The Savior comes for you. Matthew 1, starting at 18, says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary was, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and, she, and he called his name Jesus. In verse 1 there, we see that Matthew in his gospel gives a little less detail uh, compared to the Luke's um, that we read just a moment ago. Uh, I won't reread that because that was part of our um, readings just a moment ago. But in that passage, we see that Mary was willing. She was a young girl. She was betrothed. Now, betrothal was something like an engagement. However, unlike engagements here in our society, which are sometimes broken off, the betrothals in Mary's day was a lifelong commitment. The betrothal was a covenant. It was a publicly known arrangement where a man and woman, or as we would say today, a girl, was committed to marry. And the girls could be betrothed around the age of 12 or 13. But she would continue to live with her parents, and the betrothal would last a year or so, and then the groom or husband would come to get her. And then he would bring her back to his own home, and the marriage would then be consummated. They were considered married, not by ceremony, though there was one. They were considered married when she came to live with him and the marriage was consummated. So when the angel of the Lord tells Mary this, she knows the possible consequences. You see, the one year of betrothal was a time to prove a young lady's chastity and devotion to her husband. If she were found pregnant and it wasn't by him, it would be clear to all that she was not chaste. She had violated her commitment. At least that's how it would seem to everybody. If Joseph were to press matters, the consequences for her would be very severe. And this is because even though the betrothal was before the marriage, either party having relations with someone else during that period would be considered to have been committed adultery. Today, this is different for us. If an engaged person today has relations with someone other than their fiancé, most people would say that's not good. It's a betrayal, but we wouldn't call it adultery in our culture normally. Unfortunately, we would just consider it to be not that unusual, right? We have taken a good, given, a good thing that God has given, and we've cheapened it to a point that it doesn't mean much to many people. So when you consider that in Jewish society in that day, that even violating the engagement was adultery, 
And ultimately, if someone were to push the matter to the courts, it could result in the death of the one who fornicated. Whether by stoning or ruined lives through disease or relational dysfunction, fornication still brings death today. And it may not always in a legal sense, but nonetheless, promiscuous behavior ultimately comes at a cost to those who engage in it. And Mary, knowing full well the possible consequences of her pregnancy, submits to the will of God, trusting in him and saying, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The Savior comes to whoever will have him. Mary, in this vulnerable position she finds herself in, as a young woman with no way to support herself, the way her pregnancy would be perceived by the community she grew up in, she was well aware, the possibility of Joseph pushing the issue to the courts, to her shame, and possibly to her death, yet there's trust in God. Mary trusts the angel. She trusts God. She has a sense that even though she's not worthy of this great honor she's been given, that the grace of God has shown her favor. Later we see that she said that from now on, all generations would call her blessed. And certainly this is the case. Mary was blessed. She is blessed. She was not perfect. Like you and me, she was born with a sin nature. She also needed a way of salvation. And when she agreed to be a willing vessel for the Lord, she put all her trust in him. And Christ comes still today to anyone who's willing to trust in God for salvation. We don't have to carry the Savior to childbirth, but we do have to die to ourselves like Mary did. We also must be willing to cast aside our plans that we may have already had for ourselves and say, Lord willing. Mary was willing to change her plans, and so was Joseph. We speak of Mary's faith a lot, and rightly so, yet Joseph also showed himself to be a man of great faith. Joseph loved Mary. He had gone through the process of securing a betrothal to her. And when this happened, you can imagine like any young person today who looks forward to their wedding day, the expectations he had, even the urgency of having the marriage consummated, any young man in that one-year waiting period would have times of extreme impatience, times of just wanting the engagement to end and married life to begin. He probably would check up on her, and though he would have to show restraint, he would know that the day was not too far off when he would have her as his very own. But then she is found with child. How is one found to be with child? Well, it shows, right? There are symptoms. Eventually, there are visible signs, and Joseph finds this out. He's probably very hurt and confused. How could Mary do this? He may have gone to her for an explanation, but let's face it, this has never happened before and will never happen again. She may not uh, be the first person in history to say she was still a virgin and pregnant, but he was certainly the first person in history to have heard this and have it be true. Yet it isn't believable. Still, it's hard to believe, right? Yet Joseph was a just man, Scripture tells us. Many translations say there in verse 19, a righteous man. He was righteous, meaning he was one who tried to keep the law in all of his words and deeds. Now, when we say righteous in this context, we're not meaning perfectly righteous. Because uh, we know that there's no perfectly righteous except Jesus himself. But righteous in this sense means they want to do well. They're committed in their life to do well in God's eyes. 
And yet God's rule was that adultery was a severe violation of his ways. And Joseph, if he were a righteous law-keeping person, he should have brought Mary before the courts to reveal her pregnancy and testify that he was not the father. But here we learn something about righteousness and justice. It isn't found in the letter of the law. It is found in the heart. Let me say again, righteousness was not in the letter of the law. It's found in the heart. It's the heart that shows whether someone's righteous. And Joseph was righteous, but he was not willing to put Mary to shame. He's an honorable man. He doesn't understand. He's frustrated. He probably feels robbed and cheated of the virgin bride. He was expectantly looking forward to being his wife. Still, he loves Mary. He's a righteous man. In his mind, she's committed adultery. He cannot marry her, so he quietly resolves to divorce her. He doesn't want a big public spectacle, but he wants to protect her as much as he can and still be a righteous man. But then Joseph has a dream. An angel tells him that the truth really is that Mary is pregnant by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And this is helpful on many levels to Joseph. First of all, he learns Mary has not cheated on him, and and, uh, she has been faithful. Second, he can still protect her as he naturally was inclined to do. However, he still has this problem. The tradition was a one-year betrothal, and then bring the bride home. But the betrothal was not over yet, and he was to bring her home now. Can you imagine what this looked like to the community? But Joseph was willing to have his plans changed. He also believed the messenger. What do we know about Joseph? Well, we don't know a whole lot at this point. He was of the house of David, which means that his adoption of Jesus would include Jesus in that line as well, fulfilling the prophecies. We know Joseph was a man who tried to do it right. Even faced with what he thought was the end of his relationship with Mary, he still wanted to protect her. Isn't that romantic? I don't know what you think, but that's a romance story. Joseph loved Mary so much and was willing to protect her however he could. He was also willing to wait to have her as his true wife. Verse 25 says he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And it is a romance. The story of Joseph and Mary is a beautiful romance. And even more so, the story of God's love for us to send a Savior is romance as well, a romance of redemption. We look at the story of Ruth. We see a picture of this. God's, love is, God's story is a love story. And when Jesus was born, it was for love. His name was Jesus. The prophet had said he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That was one of many titles. But his name is Jesus, and it means Savior. In verse 21, Joseph is commanded to give him this name. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Does he save all? Unfortunately, not. We're given the ability to choose to have him or not have him, but he comes for you this Christmas season. Will you put your trust in him? Will you come and adore him, this Christ, this anointed one, this Messiah, this Savior, he will save his people from their sins, but not all are saved, only his people who are his people, the ones who respond to his love by turning toward him. It isn't too late. 
You know, in the story I started talking about, Scrooge wakes up, right? And he realizes it isn't too late to change. He's been given a new chance to get it right. This is an entire story of scriptures that God gives an opportunity for us to change. It isn't too late, but someday it will be. He is Savior. He has come to bring your life into alignment with God's holy purpose. And Jesus Christ has come into the world. He came to testify to the truth, and his truth is found in Scripture, and it is written in your heart. Receive Christ today. Turn away from the ugliness of your sin and turn to the beauty of the Savior of the world. He is the Savior. He was foretold by many prophets. He was birthed into this world so that each who believe in us and him can be saved, each of us. And Acts 4.12 tells us there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 5.30 says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So Mary and Joseph, that romantic couple, were given the first confirmation that the Savior would come in their lifetime, and they were players in the great story. And how did they react? Mary was willing to have the Savior. Are you willing to have the Savior? Joseph was willing to have his plans changed. Are you willing to have your plans changed in order to follow the Savior? Remember, our passage this morning focuses on the decisions of Mary and Joseph before the Savior was born. They received supernatural confirmation of the reality of Jesus the Savior being brought into their lives. And after he was born, another group was given an announcement that puts any announcement today to shame. You remember those announcements I gave earlier? There's some food after service, and that's great. Great announcement, right? That is nothing compared to this announcement we find in Luke 2, starting at verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Unto us is born a Savior. Glory to God in the highest. The Savior comes to whoever will have him. The Savior comes to whoever is willing to change their plans. 
The Savior comes for you. The Savior comes to whoever will have him. Will you have him? You must decide today whether you will have the Savior. Mary was willing. Are you willing? The Savior comes to those willing to change their plans. Joseph was willing to change his plans. Are you willing? Following Christ means giving up all your earthly plans and figuring out what his plans are for you. Are you willing to give up anything to have Jesus? Are you willing to give up everything to follow Jesus? The rich young ruler was not willing. Jesus did not chase him down. Each person will make their choice. I pray that you decide you are willing to give up everything to follow the Savior because the Savior comes for you. He comes for you. One author called him the hound of heaven. He comes for you, and even when you turn away and don't want him, he leaves his mark all over. No, he won't chase you down if you have made your final decision not to follow him. But if you're still on the fence, he gives you many opportunities still to come to him. So why don't you come to him? How will you you respond to Jesus Christ, the Savior? Mary responded with a willing heart. Joseph responded by willing, willing to have his plans changed. And the shepherds responded by rushing to seek out the Savior. And after they found him, they glorified and praised God. Open your heart and be willing to have him. Allow for your plans to change because he has better plans for you. And rush to seek him because when you find him, you will glorify and praise God. Last week, I mentioned the song Joy to the World by Isaac Watts. I talked about how it was not a Christmas song when he wrote it. It was actually in a collection of hymns on the Psalms. In particular, that song is about the second coming of Jesus. But we sing it at Christmas, which is very appropriate. I wanted to tell you a little bit more about Isaac Watts, and I've got a quote from him. What Christians sing in worship must be guided by what God has revealed about how we are to sing to such a God. And he was known as the father of English hymnody. In other words, he he kind of reinvented how hymns were sung. He he actually thought that uh, as he went to church and, and heard the hymns that they did back in those days, that there was no human passion going into them. They were just almost recitations. And he believed that hymns ought to be a true outpouring from the heart. Um, But he gives us the perfect combination that we should all be striving to reach, which is passion and feeling grounded on solid theological foundations. And poetry in the life of Isaac Watts had been a central role uh, in, in his day, and the Watts family had excelled in it for generations. Uh, in fact, his dad, Watts Sr., vented his frustration at the established church in a couplet, a type of poem, and he said this, Why do our churchmen with such zeal contend for what the scriptures nowhere recommend? And so Isaac Watts Jr. grew up hearing lots of poetry. And I want to read from a, a little Uh, excerpt from a book I had about uh, Watts written by Douglas Bond, which I highly recommend. He said, in an early instance of of young Watts' poetic inclination came one evening during family worship at the dinner table. While his father read scripture and guided family prayers, Watts spotted a mouse climbing up the bell pole and began to giggle. 
and rebuked by his father who asked him why he was laughing during prayer. Watts replied, there was a mouse went for want of stairs, ran up a rope to say his prayers. And his parents were amazed at his ability to rhyme in his head without writing the lines down on paper, and so they encouraged his rhyming for a while. As children do when they're encouraged, Watts began rhyming everything all the time. And they started to get annoyed by his incessant rhyming. His father forbade him to do it, and he meant it. Isaac soon forgot and fell back into rhyming. Taking him over his knees, Watts, Junior, Watts Sr. prepared to lay into his son's backside with the switch. The young Watts rather unconvincingly cried, Oh, Father, do some mercy take, and I will no more verses make. <laughs> and his father did have some mercy ta- that day, but the church can be grateful that Watts, contrary to his childish resolve, continued to make verses throughout the remainder of his life, the very gift that so annoyed his parents when he was a child would be sanctified and become the means of enriching the worship of tens of thousands of Christians in his lifetime and millions in the centuries since his death. Watts's mother, Sarah, found some handwritten poems one day and asked whether they were Isaac's. He claimed they were his, but she doubted a child could write poetry to the degree of depth that she observed. An idea occurred to her, and she promptly had her son sit down at the kitchen table and write her a poem. He did. Note the depth of his gospel understanding in these ten lines written on demand when he was seven years old. Let's put it on the screen. This is the one that starts with, I am a vile, polluted. All right, this is, he wrote this on the spot for his mom. I am a vile, polluted lump of earth, so I've continued since my birth. Although Jehovah grace does daily give me, As sure this monster Satan will deceive me. Come therefore, Lord, from Satan's claws relieve me. Wash me in thy blood, O Christ, and grace divine impart. Then search and try the corners of my heart, that I in all things may be fit to do service to thee and sing thy praises too. That's pretty good for seven years old. But as Paul Harvey would say, there's more to the rest of the story that some of you might have caught if you're good at looking at acrostics. Look at the first letter of each line of that. You see, this young man realized his own need for the Savior because the first letter of each line spells Isaac Watts. He needed ten lines because he chose to write a poem that not only would rhyme but would be an acrostic of his name. And this was no doubt one of the moments that a mother cherishes, right? And hides it in her heart. Imagine her wonder at her son's gifting, but still more the gratitude to God any Christian mother would have for so obvious a working of grace in her son's heart. And so as we can close this time together, I just want to challenge you. We're told in Scripture that we need to become like a child. Here's a seven-year-old, and, I've, and we're leaving that poem up for a moment, that realizes that he's a vile, polluted lump of earth. And he's continued since when? His birth. Although Scripture would actually say before that, right? Um, and yet he realizes that there's a chance for him as he sees himself vile, and it's in being washed by the blood of Jesus. And what a beautiful thing it is 
as we wrap up our unwrapping theme, which was unwrapping love this morning, I hope that you will understand that if you have not put faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ, yet, you are still remaining a vile, polluted lump of earth. It's not a nice thing to say on Christmas to people, is it? But that's what Scripture tells us, that in and of ourselves we have a sin nature, and we're in desperate need of a Savior. But our loving God, our Father God, has shown us his love through the cross of Jesus Christ. And we will be eternally grateful, those of us who put faith in him. If you have not yet put faith in Jesus Christ and you're here this morning, you're not here by mistake to hear this message that you need a Savior so that you don't endure an eternity of conscious torment. Eternal conscious torment is the theological words we use to describe what you're in store, what's in store for you as the wrath of God is poured out for the sins that we've had that we rightly deserve that wrath for. Unless we put faith in Jesus Christ, the gift that he gave us to show his love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever will believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and your encouragement. Thank you for your love, Lord, that you've shown us through your word. Your love that shows us how vile and in need of salvation we are. And your love that provides the need we have. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that hasn't put faith in Christ, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would draw them to yourself and convince them of their need for Jesus, convict them of their sins, and convince them of the truth of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that they may come to faith in you, that you may be glorified, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.